What's up, everybody? I'm Dr. Peter Bolden. And I'm Dr. Craig Spodek, and you're listening to the Bulletproof Dental Practice Podcast. Simply the best podcast in dentistry designed to help you maximize your practice and your life through four pillars of success. Leadership, team culture, marketing, and financial freedom, and everything in between. Now, let's get to it. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Bulletproof Dental Practice Podcast. I'm here today with my co-host, Dr. Peter Bolden, and a very esteemed guest, one that I admire very greatly and has a massive influence in the financial space, uh, Mr. Peter Malouk. Good to have you here, Peter. Thanks for having me, Craig. So Peter's the president of Creative Planning, one of the largest uh, wealth management firms. They um, manage over $40 billion. They're an RIA. We'll get into that in a little bit. But what I love about um, Peter's training and his psychology is that you realize it's not, you have to manage your own understanding of your wealth management. It's not just to set and forget it. And, um, and it's not also just something that you want to look at every day as well. But uh, Peter, just go into a little bit about like your background and how you got into um, the space. You know, I have a little bit in common with your listeners in that I know that dentists kind of take, get taken advantage of a little bit. And my dad's a physician. He's still practicing. Uh, but when I was growing up, I just saw him constantly complain or was very disappointed that he would find himself in financial product after financial product that didn't make sense for him. So, and he'd learned that after the fact. He was an, Im- is an immigrant and um, he, you know, he had an insurance agent and a financial guy and a lawyer and a CPA, and they weren't really talking to each other. And uh, the financial guy was really an insurance guy. And he just found himself working 80 hours a week as a young doctor and putting all his money into things that didn't make sense. And I just remember thinking, oh, I'm going to go you know, get a, a graduate degree in business and law and see, and see if I can work in that field with physicians. And I did that the first two years of my career. That's how I got started. Um, and uh, it was really motivated by trying to create a conflict-free way to advise physicians that were taken advantage of. So it's not unlike the community that's on the, that's listening to this podcast right now. Yeah, as a personal note, and I've spoken about this before in different podcasts, but um, I was a member of a dental practice consulting company. So their job was to help grow the practice, but they also had like a affiliated arm, a financial arm. That sounds right. like a conflict of interest. Conflict, I'm, sure you could yeah. speak, I'm sure you could speak to that better than we could. But what it really was, was I believe the, co- the consulting company was kind of like a Trojan horse. They got you in, but really right. where they made their money is they just spoon fed you tons of whole life insurance. And right. um, I, I've been, you know, even when I first started, I was probably making just about a hundred grand or so, maybe 150. And I was spending 32 and $40,000 of that into yeah. whole life plans. And I just thought the guy was the greatest. He took me out to amazing restaurants. And he must, <laughs> he must really like me. <laughs> and, uh, and Peter, really, that's, that's one of Craig's most, most uh, cherished traits. He, he needs to make sure that everybody likes him. But oh, Peter, I, I there's, a, yeah. there's a lot of dentists that are like that. And we're just, you know, we always do the right thing for pa- patients and we don't really have, you know, it just turns out that when you do the right thing in dentistry, it winds up making you more money. So if right. you just take care of people and do the right thing, you'll actually do better than if you try to hustle them. So I, I was approaching it with that. And the funny thing was, is after paying into this for many, many years, I met another one of these insurance salesmen. And this guy figured he really, he actually said, he's like, I really like you, buddy. You, do you like the Miami heat? 
I was like, yeah, I love them. He's like, you ever been to Nobu? I'm like, oh, I love Nobu. Why? He's like, well, I've got floor seats of the heat uh, and we could go out to Nobu. And I'm like, wow, you just met me. I, I wonder why this guy, <laughs> he wants to take me out for this. He really, really likes you. Right. He wanted to take me out for like a thousand dollar night. Um, and, yeah. and I actually said like, when are we going to go? Right. And, I started to sit, and luckily enough, I started, I read one of the books that um, you had written and it started to be like, oh, geez, I'm, I'm actually paying for this. So what he was going to do is he was going to take me out of this one whole life policy and yeah. flip me into another one and reset the commissions. Yeah. And it, and I almost did it. I almost oh, did it. And the expensive Miami heat game. Yeah. I, would, I could have like bought, I could have like actually sponsored one of the players with my right. own logo or something like that. <laughs> but it, it's amazing because I go on these Facebook chat rooms and even today, the conversation of Sam, Dr. Samir Puri, he's a big proponent of like, it doesn't make sense. You have all these like trolls in these dental Facebook chat rooms. So there's a bunch of dentists, but you don't realize that one of them is just an insurance salesman. Yeah. And halfway through, I'll get on. I'm like, are you a dentist by any chance? Like, no, but I, do, I work with a lot of them. My father was a dentist. Like right. somehow that makes you more. <laughs> right. So it's, it's scary out there. Yeah, it is scary out there. I think you've touched on something that, you know, if you just said if you if you do really well as a dentist, you make more money. And it's kind of the same thing if you're an architect or you're an engineer. But that's just not how the financial advice profession works. I mean, you can make an incredible living finding four people a year to sell a permanent life insurance policy to or sell an equity indexed annuity to. You only got to find a few of them. So you right. can kind of take the whole year off, network, mingle, go to a couple uh, NBA games courtside, and you can make a six-figure living in the financial profession. And so it really, it really, the economics are not aligned with the person on the other side of the table most of the time. It's funny, Peter. I've uh, always been proud of my financial acumen as a dentist, right? I study it. I like it. I enjoy it. And I, too, fell victim, just like Craig was saying to the whole life policy because the way it was presented to me was this is a no-brainer it's a tax deferred you know vehicle and blah 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 and um and in a recent audit you know i actually was advised by several people that it's time to get out of that that makes and that was a buddy sense. of his by the way it was a yeah, buddy, it was of, buddy his. of his yeah. and uh I, a, buddy I, of, I, a buddy of peter's that yeah 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 he's big and tall and, uh, <laughs> well, you know, sometimes you know when you're selling stuff you find a way to believe in it too oh yeah so totally. it's, yeah it's, confirmational it's, bias right that, that's right compensation <laughs> drives behavior it's the upton sinclair quote try to convince something somebody's doing yeah but it's funny though we talk about you talk about psychology or craig maybe before we hit record and that you know i think as dentists we fall prey to a lot of things and so you hear about a lot of embezzlement you hear a lot of whole life things you hear and it's not obviously it's not for from our from our mental bandwidth obviously we're capable of doing it it's just we we want to just treat people and right and get in that lane of treating people and so and pe and others recognize that and yeah. um and that's where it obviously you know we we you know peter we aren't trained we aren't trained in dental school in any kind of running a practice there's no really financial courses there's no marketing there's no buyer beware courses there's nothing it's just there's here's, no how, business you, here's how you do dentistry go do yeah. that and let other people around you that are, that are supporting the industry take care of you. And unfortunately, that hasn't worked out so well. That narrative has not worked out so well in, in I'd say, 80% of the cases. Yeah. I think that it's a shame that in dental school, medical school, they don't teach that, right? I mean, they didn't teach me in business school how to build a house. They assume I'm going to have somebody else build the house, and that makes sense. But 
the financial component is a big part of being a dentist, right? Running your actual practice and, and the financial affairs it's around it. It's a business it. at the end of the day, it, it's, right? a, it's a business. And, and most dentists are very uncomfortable with that, by the way. If you tell dentists they're in business, like, so, oh, right. no, I have a problem. That's not true. I, I, I do think that a little bit. No. Right. Maybe not oh. the ones you know, the ones I know. <laughs> Sorry, Peter, we interrupted you. No, I, I just think it's a, it's a shame that they don't learn those things. Then you learn it, the, you know, the, the hardest the way hard you can way. learn something is through experience, right? And so you've got a group of people that's a high income or high income earners that are super busy and that are naturally empathetic. So it's a perfect combination uh, of a target for a salesperson. You know, it's just a perfect combination. Peter, let me ask you something. So the, the average age of people being able to retire, I, I read statistics all the time that I'm baffled by, like that 65% of America can't come up with $500 in an emergency. Yeah. Um, and then you hear about the retirement age getting more and more and dentistry is falling in sync. Craig was indicating that, that age 69 is now kind of the age in which dentists can retire independently. Right. Why do you think there's this shift all of a sudden or, or that is that that trend line is going in the wrong direction. Why do you think that is? Like, why do you think people are just lack the foresight to say, Hey, I need to save for a rainy day. Like what's going on in the world that this is, this is, this is the trend lines increasing. Well, part of it is the lack of foresight and part of it's the way the economics of just existing uh, in the world have changed. So I know you guys have a global following, but let's just take the United States as, as an example here. So basically used to be, you go to school, you have debt, you have your practice, you pay off your debt, you put your kids through college, you retire, you pay for healthcare for a little while, Medicare kicks in. Mm -hmm. Well, all, all of those key expense components have changed to the negative very extremely. So now when somebody comes out of school, they have far more debt. Even after you adjust for inflation, it's disproportionately high. So you're, you've got this extra weight on the back of the dentist that is way different than somebody from a few decades ago. Mm -hmm. Then you have um, most of them now are not just going into practice, they're buying someone else's practice, right? So they're adding to the debt, often they're buying a building, and then they're running their practice, and now their kid's school costs more. It's, it's grown to double the cost of inflation. So to put their kids through school, those normal expenses you have in midlife are much more substantial now. And then if you retire before Medicare, which a lot of people used to do, the cost of healthcare is so expensive it hurts a lot of people. So you have these three components of cost that have gotten much more significant. And you add that to this, the whole, it's a, a lot more difficult to keep up with the Joneses today than it was 20 years ago when we have so much segmented cable and radio and social media giving us all these different comparative groups versus the few groups we could compare ourselves to. And we kind of had to go out of our way to do it uh, 25 years ago. And so I think you've got this so social pressure to keep up You've got a lot bigger debt burden and key core costs in health and education, and it's pushing a lot of professions that have that kind of arc out, out in retirement further. You see that same, not just with dentists, you see it with physicians and others as well. I think it's also troubling because in, in the medical field, physicians and dentists, you tend to do better over time, incrementally better over time. You tend yeah. to uh, make a little bit more money each year in practice, and that we've seen that trend in dentistry. So- as long as you're making more money, you can always spend more money, right? But the, the, the pace at which you spend oftentimes outpaces what you earn and your increase in earnings and get yourself upside down. I know that um, it's notorious that doctors do that. Um, yeah. And I just, I wonder, are people, do you have data to show that people are spending more money as a, as a percentage of their earnings? 
I don't have data, but I could I could just tell you from our practice, there's just no question about it. I mean, there's so many, you were talking about physicians, there's so many physicians and dentists that retire and they retire with a few million bucks because they maxed out their retirement plan and that was it. Mm-hmm. Everything else they spent and that extra, you know, working till 70 instead of 60, that allows your retirement plan to double up again. Right? So it, it, that's really what's making people um, be able to retire because they're spending every other dollar usually um, along the way. Peter, what about like, can you, can you touch on, this is something I've just been looking at recently and been intrigued by, is this that you, you talked about the three components that are the reasons for why people are, you know, lacking the foresight. What about the purchasing power of the dollar? How's that, that's declined, right? And, and I think unbeknownst to a lot of us that, you know, it's gone down pretty drastically in the last, you know, let's say since the last recession. Yeah, and I think if you have a, if what $50,000 isn't going to buy you today, what it bought you 10 years ago, but over that time period, inflation's actually been relatively controlled. It hasn't okay. been really high. It's not the 70s or early 80s. Um, we've had pretty modest inflation other than those key costs we talked about, education and healthcare, which, you know, education, the dentist is facing it two ways, right? They've got all the debt coming out of their school, and then they're paying for their kids' uh, mm-hmm. debt, which is, you know, now going to school is like an all-time high, right? So they've got that double whammy that a generation before was way, it's 80% less. It was dramatically different. Uh, and then the healthcare chain, the healthcare is growing two, three times inflation, right. retiring early. That's really become a non-starter for a lot of people because of that. But a lot of things, you know, buying a computer, buying a TV, a lot of things going out to eat have gotten more affordable mm-hmm. than they were a generation ago. The problem is those are 1%, you know, 2% of what, what people spend money, spend on. money on education, healthcare, you're talking 10, 20, 30% of what people spend money on. Got it. That's incredible. Um, so let, let me uh, just, I want to go back because in the intro, we talked about an RIA and I think this is really important because um, we were talking about what you got to know who you're dealing with. So spend a little bit of time talking about like what a broker dealer slash RIA and why these terms are important to the listener and what, what it means for them. Right. So you got to look at the financial profession. There are a lot of financial advisors. There's about 380,000. Um, but you can divide them into a couple camps. You can divide them in two really big camps. One are brokers and the other are independent advisors. So, uh, and not all are bad and not all are good. There's good and bad of both of them, but the way they're compensated and their legal obligations are different. And if you want to set yourself up for success, you can kind of filter this crowd a little bit to at least get some alignment with you before you get advice. Cause like you said earlier, you know, compensation drives behavior. So brokers have to do what's suitable for their clients. So a, a brokerage house typically will have financial advisors. They call themselves financial advisors. Um, and then the, the brokerage house will also have products. Some of those products can be sold on commission. Some of those products will have different names. So for example, JP Morgan is a brokerage house. They have Chase products. Um, and that's very typical across all these major brokerage houses. So kind of think of the law firm names, I mean, Morgan Stanley, Merrill Lynch, JP Morgan, uh, Goldman Sachs, these are all brokerage houses. Then you have independent advisors. Independent advisors are fiduciaries. They have to do what's in the best interests of the client. Uh, so they tend not to make uh, commissions on any investments. They don't tend not to own their own products. They tend to look for the lowest cost uh, investment vehicles. Because if you've got a broker and you sue them and say, hey, I bought this full life policy from you. It wasn't appropriate for me. I, I could have done better somewhere else. I could have bought this for a lot less. 
All they have to say is it was suitable for you. Well, I mean, mm-hmm. anything is suitable just about under the law. If you went to a restaurant and uh, you anything on the menu is suitable, right? I mean, as, as long as it's not going to spam is suitable, right? You're going to live. Uh, when you go over to an independent advisor, the independent advisor has to go, this is what I think is best for you. This is what I would do for myself. It's a totally different legal standard. It's not just words. Now you go to the fiduciary advisor and you want to take them arbitration or you want to sue them for giving you bad advice. They're going to have to show, this is what I would have done with my own money. So you're going from the lowest standard of the law to the highest standard of the law. Now only 10% of advisors are independent advisors. So only 10% are fiduciaries. If you want to simplify the landscape for yourself a little bit, start by putting yourself in a world where there's a lot less conflict. Now, even in that independent world, there's a group that are what are we, we call duly registered. I love um, those. Those are my just, favorite when I talk yeah, about this those. Is, this is amazing to, to me. So you have basically this group of people that are licensed uh, as a broker, but then they set up a different firm that's an independent advisor. And so you can say, hey, are you a fiduciary? They'll say yes. Are you a registered investment advisor, an RIA? They'll say yes. Uh, do you have to act in my best interest? They'll say yes. It's true. But if you look at their business card or their website on the fine print, print at the bottom, it says, you know, securities offered through and it'll have the brokerage house. So they can, in the same meeting with you, be a fiduciary and then take their invisible hat off and put another hat on and become a broker. To me, that's very dangerous. It's the wolf in, wolf in sheep's clothing. You, you don't know when they're a fiduciary and when they're not. So you really want somebody who's a fiduciary all the time, not duly registered, not a broker. Now you're dealing with somebody at least we're starting with the very basic that, hey, this person, if I pay them, has to actually do what's right for me. I mean, us, we're talking about a very low bar here. So if you start there, you've eliminated 90 to 95% of all advisors, and you've probably made it a little bit easier to get good advice. But the funny thing is that the average broker, and we were talking about this before that we started re- recording, the average broker does not realize the sophistication of the consumer. So when you ask a broker, hey, are you a fiduciary or RIA? Like, yeah, yeah, I got that. Yeah, I got that. Right. I, I do that. Are you a broker? Yeah, I do that too. They don't even realize that you would ask these questions because when you hear, you know, my friends always talking to me like, oh, well, why would you, char- why would you go to that RIA? He's charging you 1% or 2%. I was like, well, what do you think your broker's charging you? Charges me nothing. And it's true, they may not have a percent, but that thing he sold you gives him massive commissions. I mean, imagine for us dentists, if every time you placed a zirconia crown over an Emacs crown, you got a dividend check in the mail of $35. I guarantee you, you'd find a way to place more zirconia crowns. It's just, it is what it is. It's just really scary. So Peter, what's the one question that that those, those listeners that have could ask whoever is in control of their money or who they're using that they can't? there can't be this ambiguous response, right? It's a question, a tactical question. You can say, right, good. here you go. And you can't worm, you know, people can't scream out of it. Can you give that question? Yeah, this is a little technical, but it, it's, it'll get you the right answer is, do you have the series seven? And if the answer is yes, then they're a licensed broker. Okay. So you that's a pretty hard exam. I remember hearing yeah. some of my buddies do that. It's, that's a hard thing to have. It's just, it's a test you have to take to, to, to be doing the brokerage thing. And I think that, I mean, basically saying, are you a broker is, is good enough. You can always just go to the website or their business card should have a disclosure on the bottom if they're registered as a broker and you can skip that, uh, skip so that conversation. So let me make sure I understand. If, if they're a broker, their fiduciary duty supersedes anything else they have. If, they're a, a, if you're an independent advisor, you're a fiduciary all the time. All the time. 
Okay. If you're a broker, if you're a broker, then you just have to do what's suitable. You can. Okay. So anything. if they're a broker, then you then possibly. So the question is, are you a broker? If they answer yes, then possibly your antenna should go up. Yes, that's Got right. It. Now yes. there are plenty of good brokers and there are pretty, right. plenty of corrupt independent advisors, but it's just going back to getting somebody who's at least legally and economically somewhat aligned with you. You know, at yeah, least yeah. And I'm just saying as a, as a due diligence question, because I wouldn't, I wouldn't even know the questions to, to right. ask. Right. And uh, so I'm just saying as part of the, part of the, you know, repertoire of questions, that's a good one to start with. Right. I have, I have a question in other parts of the world. Is it illegal or not legal rather to do this? It, it seems yeah. like this is deceptive to, I mean, I, these are my words, but it seems it's a little deceiving. So in other parts of the world, like the EU, UK, anything like that, is there a a law in place that you could not do this there? So it's it's unique generally to the United States and generally to the financial services profession. So if you go to a lawyer, a CPA, a a doctor, they have to legally do what's Mm -hmm. best for the client or patient. It's unique to a financial advisor that the law in the United States says you don't. It's also unique to the United States. Australia, the United Kingdom have passed laws requiring advisors to become fiduciaries. And Australia has radically changed the landscape there of how all financial advice uh, is delivered. So it's very unique to financial advisors in the United States. Now, why does this exist? It exists because every time a group gets together and says, hey, this is crazy. Why, Why are we in a society where the financial advisor doesn't have to act in my best interest, but all these other professions do? Let's pass a law that's really simple and says, the advisor has to act in our best interest. The brokerage houses get together and they form a lobby and they go to Congress and say, hey, this is America. We shouldn't be telling, setting any standards here. You know, let people figure this out for themselves. And, you know, people will figure it out. That's basically the argument. That rule became known as the Merrill Lynch rule because Merrill no way. because they led the lobby to um, prevent the Fiduciary Act from uh, passing. So that's the, that's the behind the scenes thing that's happening. If you, if you, everyone in the United States had to be a fiduciary, you are not gonna get sold that whole life policy by somebody calling themselves a financial advisor. You, can't, you would never be able to, no one would be able to sell you a mutual fund that costs one and a half percent when the same fund costs 0.8, you know, somewhere else. They'd always have to go to the best way to meet your needs, the lowest cost weight products possible almost never be able to own their own products, which would turn these brokerage houses upside down. You know, if you walk into a brokerage house and you want to buy an international fund, their recommended list is usually going to have their international fund on it. Well, if they've got to act in your best interest, how are they going to argue that's the best fund of the 1,500 options out there? They're not going to be able to, right? So a big part of their business would just go away. And that's, that's really what needs like- to happen to the profession. It feels like big pharma and the tobacco. It, it feels like something like that, like that yeah. there's lobby controlling what's not in the right interest for the, for the individual. That's, that's, right. that's, that's disheartening. Yeah. But in, in the UK, they've already passed legislation, so they don't have this issue there. Yeah, the UK and Australia, I think, is even further ahead than anybody in terms of getting this right. And what about like advertising? Like I know because I see tons of advertisements for um, these brokerage houses. Is an RIA allowed to do the same type of advertising? So you're allowed to advertise. Yeah, you, an independent advisor is allowed to advertise. You just don't see a lot of large independent RAs. So for example, we're one of the largest independent firms in the country. We manage about 44 billion clients in all 50, 50 states. But you compare that to these brokerage houses. So if you look at some of the firms we talked about earlier, they're all multi-trillion dollar with oh, wow. a T firms. Wow. So brokerage, a brokerage house might employ 50,000 advisors or 20,000 advisors a very, very large 
independent advisor is going to have a few hundred employees. That's got to be changing over time, though. The RIA segment yeah. has to be expanding because the consumer is becoming more and more aware. I mean, That's everything's true. shifting. People are becoming conscientious about what they put in their bodies, what they eat. I mean, the, people are really becoming more buyer buyer conscious or caveat emptor. That's a, that's a, the buyer is becoming much more sophisticated. You see a big move of money from brokerage houses to independents. To be like one of the 100 largest independents in the country 10 years ago, you, you could manage a billion dollars. Today, it, it probably needs to be 10 billion. It's gotten much more significant. You're seeing a few firms, 25 billion and up, emerge as clients get savvy, people get savvy as to what they should be getting for their money. At the end of this year, we'll be entering in the year 2020. 2020, everyone associates with perfect vision. Wouldn't it be cool to start your year off with perfect vision and clarity for your practice's trajectory? Heck, even other aspects of your life? We are doing the summit early in the year for this very purpose. As practice owners ourselves, we are bringing tips and processes that helped grow our practices to scale. Learn from people who have done it, not just preach about it. So join us in Houston at the St. Regis, February 28th and 29th. We've negotiated amazing nightly room charges at $179. Even if you've been to a summit of ours before, do not miss this one. We're going to be focusing on digital marketing, including social media. Hope to see you there. Uh, let's talk. Uh, let's let's take a shift for a second because I want I want to hit this one thing. Let's talk about like timing the market. Like I love I, I hear these I hear friends tell me my my broker my financial planner whatever you call him he's telling me to take all my money and put it in cash right now because he's he feels like the market's overheated. Well, right. Let's, let's, let's talk- really pivot though, Craig. Let's back up for a sec. Okay. We do this, okay. Peter. By the way, so this is we we we've, we've been very kind to each other. You you have a calming effect on Peter's right. my banter. It usually winds up with a a somewhat of a tangential <laughs> argument. argument. <laughs> so, Peter, uh, a lot of our listeners have not, you know, have been out 10 years or less. I would say probably yeah. 50% as a whole. A lot yeah. of them haven't lived through the pain of the 2008 crisis that, you know, I went through and I learned a lot of lessons from that. My practice at the time was highly specialized in just just the cosmetics. And I thought, you know, the economy was just going to keep blowing and going the way it was. People were pulling out home equity lines and paying off their $50,000 cosmetic dental cases and at life was good until it wasn't. So a lot of our listeners have had not had the context. They were either in high school or, or dental school when 2008 and nine was going on and just don't have the pain, right? Don't have that context of that pain. And obviously, you know, the, uh, the tone in the market now, if you turn on CNBC is, you know, everyone's been expecting the next recession to come any second now. So do you have any advice for in times of uncertainty, which what to do because i think i think people need a uh i need, think people need advice because it, you haven't lived through it you need some advice of someone like yourself well i mean at first i would tell all your listeners and viewers is to start as soon as you possibly can i mean just get an account open and start putting something away um the power of compounding is you know pretty incredible if you're in just seven percent every 10 years your money's going to double and so you want to start that in your 30s not your 50s you know if you can so getting in as, as early as you can. Second, you know, you, like you said, everyone's always talking about the next recession or correction or bear market. I mean, let's just define those for a second. Uh, a recession is just the economy contracting, uh, oftentimes just a little bit. Sometimes we don't even know there's a recession mm-hmm. until it's over. And then right. the data comes out and we go, oh, over the last two quarters, we had a recession. It's over now. To most people's surprise, the market usually goes up uh, during a recession. It just doesn't go up as much. And then you have corrections, which will separate the stock market from the economy. The economy is like actually what's 
you know, how, unemployment and, and earnings and, thing, and uh, people's take-home pay and things like that. Um, the stock market's just, how are the stocks themselves doing? If you look at the 500 biggest stocks in America, Nike, Google, Amazon, we call that the S&P 500. Some people have heard of the Dow, which is you know, 30 stocks. The S&P 500 is a pretty fundamental part of most people's portfolio, and it generally eventually matches the economy. So when there is a correction, it just means the stock market's gone down 10% or more. And the average correction's 13, 14%. That happens about every single year. That's how often that happens. It's all the time. Um, now, it sounds like, well, that's not a big deal. Why would anybody freak out about that? But the Dow's around 27,000 now. That means the Dow's got to go down about 3,000 points just for an average correction. And in general, despite this happening almost every year, everyone freaks out every time, right? Now, second, we have bear markets. And you know, maybe 10, 20% of corrections become bear markets. A bear market's just a drop of 20% or more. Happens all the time. Every three and a half to six years, there's a bear market. They don't space themselves out very nicely. To your point, we haven't had one in more than 10 years. A lot of your listeners have never experienced one because the market's gone straight up since uh, March 9 of 2009. It's just, it's just gone up. But before that, there was 9-11. There was the tech bubble. There was 08, 09. I mean, those are some great examples of bear markets. We're talking about a 40, 40 plus percent drop all three times. Now, what should people do about when people are talking about corrections, bear markets, and all that? Number one, they should know these things happen all the time. If there's going to be a correction every year, a drop of about 13, 14% every year on average, and you're 40, you're going to have 45 of these in your life, right? Mm -hmm. If there's a bear market drop of 20% or more on average, let's just say every five years, uh, and you're 40, well, you're going to have, this is going to happen nine more times in your life. So it's normal. It happens all the time. Now, what does every correction and every bear market and all of U.S. history have in common? All of them have recovered, and in all cases, the market's gone on to new highs. So if we accept that, one, this happens all the time, and two, it's happening so frequently it can't be predicted, and there's a lot of data that shows it can't, um, and, and we know that it always turns out to work out better, what should you be doing through that? You should continue buying. You should... Be very happy. If you go to the grocery store, things are on sale. You want to buy more. If a car's on sale, you might get a nicer car. But when the stock market's on sale, everyone freaks out. And you should be wanting to buy more and add to that, add to that pot. You're buying things at a discount. And I'll stop rambling here in a second, but I'd say this to all your listeners is, if you were the worst investor in the world and you put your money in the day before the 0809 market started to collapse or before 9-11 or before the tech bubble, in all cases, you made a huge amount of money. Right. If you put all your money in the day before the 0809 market collapsed, 10 years later, you'd almost tripled your money. I mean, that's how hard it is to lose money in the market over time. People look at the markets as this esoteric, weird thing. But just like a dental practice, if I was going to buy one, I'm expecting to make money on that practice. When you buy Nike, Google, Amazon, when you buy those 500 stocks, we're expecting to make money from those. We're expecting those corporations to make money and to be worth more 10 years from now than they are today. Peter, the, since uh, 19, I think 74, the, uh, and I'm going to get a little bit more granular, Craig. So Craig will be like, oh, we're going tangential. But <laughs> No, but, I'm just waiting, Peter. I'm just going to give you a warning. I so, just want to give him, I want to give him a warning that this conversation will not end without him talking crypto. I know no, I'm not going to talk crypto. No, 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 no. no, no, no. I've I already know. done my due diligence and okay. I know how he okay. stands. Okay. I am not okay. bringing it up. Okay. <laughs> but, I, I, congratulations, Peter. Peter, the, uh, 
the, since 74, hasn't the inverted yield curve been a great bellwether for indicating when a recession is about to hit? It's been okay. So let's walk through what the inverted yield curve is because I, most people don't know what that is. So basically, if you, let's use mortgages as an example. Most people understand mortgages. If you were, are going to borrow money for three years, we expect to pay a lower rate than we would pay if we're borrowing money for 30 years. And so the curve is you know, straight up and, 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 uh, and that's a normal yield curve, right? We expect that the longer you loan money to somebody, the more you're going to get paid. In an inverted yield curve, a bank will actually pay you more money in the short run than they would do in the long run. So you might put your money in the bank and they have to give you 2% and then they're loaning out money at 1%. Well, would a bank do that? No, because a bank would lose money. And so what the bank does is it stops lending money and that suffocates the financial system because now people can't borrow money to buy dental practices or to buy new equipment or to buy cars or, and so and the economy contracts. So if a yield curve inverts, uh, if a bank is going to have to pay you more for your deposit than they can lend out in the long run, the, in, the, the yield curve is inverted. Obviously, if it stays that way, it's not sustainable. Uh, they're not, it's not sustainable. The, you know, the circulatory system of the economy is access to capital and the banks are not going to lend money. But the problem with the, all of this is that yield curve sometimes inverts for a day or two or a month or two, not enough to change uh, what's actually happening. And so sometimes it's an indicator and sometimes it's not an indicator. I okay. certainly wouldn't bet on it. Okay. All right. Well, that's interesting. That's good. Does the, does the repo market scare you right now? I, I mean, I think that these are all warning signs. When you look at all, all the things you're talking about have to do with is money available to loan in the short and wrong, long run. And when you see contraction in those markets, mm -hmm. it can sometimes be a warning sign. The problem is there are all kinds of warning signs and most of the time we get through these things just fine. Just fine. Yeah. And I, I think the issue is, is the consequence of being wrong, right? So let's say I go my whole life and I'm right 15 times, but let's say I'm wrong about one thing. I'll give you some examples that my clients have been wrong about. I had one client that went to cash after Trump won. So hey, the market's not gonna react well to this. Never went back in. We had one that did that when Obama won. I had one that did that in 0809 that left the market. I've got one that did that with the inverted yield curve. What do all of them have in common? Because they've all been wrong so far, right? Yeah. But the issue is that they haven't been wrong. The issue is what is the consequence of being wrong? The consequence is the market was at a low level. So let's say when, from where Trump was elected to today or where Obama was elected today, the market has moved tremendously to the upside. Right? They're never gonna get that money back. Now let's take the consequences of being wrong the other way. Let's say that the yield inverts today, stays inverted, and you go to cash. You take your million dollars and you go to cash, and the market goes down. Okay, you're perfectly right. Well, you've got to get back in at some point, right? Mm -hmm. Somewhere you're going to go back in. I'm, I'm in the whole time. What happens to me? Well, nothing. I mean, the market's going to come back. I'm going to collect my dividends, and it's going to go on to new highs, right? So the, the only thing that happened is I missed an opportunity to exit at what may be a top and buy what it may be at a bottom. No, I've never in my whole career seen anybody do that. Not one time, not me, not anybody else. And never once, not once. When, think, when the Dow goes from 27 to 20, nobody says, I feel better about buying now. They go, I was right and it's going to get worse. So it's just, if, if you're out and the market goes up, that's permanent loss. If you are in and the market goes down, you collect your dividends and you wait and you're, gonna, you're still going to make money. It's incredible how many brokers and, and advisors will tell you 
that they have that they that they believe based on and and it's also sensationalism and and the financial journals their goal is to get eyeballs on the on, on the screen yeah. and on the paper so they they point to these things they're pontificating about what's going to happen but really they don't know what the hell they're talking about uh, you know and yeah. to to tell someone to go to cat i would think i mean i'm not this is not my space but i would think that would be a huge warning sign is if your advisors like go to cash right now to me, that's a deal breaker. Like, so to, to me, if somebody's telling you that, they're very likely to cause you some permanent harm at some point during your relationship together. Because they're not going to only say that once in their career. They're going to say it several times. They're probably going to be wrong most of the time, and you, you might have permanent loss uh, because of that. Our vice president here joined this profession because of that exact same thing happening with her, her parents and a broker, and it, it really set them back. Uh, on their retirement for a very long time. That's just one decision from one guy one day, right? And that's, I mean, if you think about how many thousands of hours you spend earning your money and you you're, you go to somebody and somebody feels like they understand when the time is to go to cash, um, if they're wrong, that's there can be very permanent negative consequences for that. Yeah, my aunt does that, by the way. So my aunt Judy, she helps with my mom and dad's money. And, uh, and she does this, like, basically, I have this crystal ball for those of you who are, not, <laughs> who are not watching, but it's literally like the magic eight ball. She pulls out into cash and there's such interesting human behavior around confirmation bias. How is your relationship with her? If she's going to listen to this. <laughs> she, she, she won't. I, I talked to her about this openly. I, I literally send, you know, videos and articles and stuff like that. And she's like, no, no, you don't understand because they're, let's talk about the human psychology portion of this, how she believes she's actually right. Like let dive into that for a second, Peter, if you don't mind. Well, I mean, I'm fascinated by this because if you look at the last 10 years, I mean, the market's gone up. So any call to go to cash over that period, unless it was accompanied by a, a call to go right back in, during these like little mini corrections that have happened along the way, I mean, would really be a negative thing. This isn't really a theoretical discussion. I mean, there's a lot of research and data and evidence that market timing does not work. I mean, so it's yeah. not like it's not like there's a camp that says it does, a camp that says it doesn't. Just because two people say different things doesn't doesn't mean that that each one has equal merit. There is a tremendous amount of research that shows that professionals that go in and out of the market or that engage in trading stocks on a regular basis, underperform an investor that buys an index and holds. That's a fact. Like it's even day fact. traders though? Like so a day trader doesn't do as well as s and No, 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 not even close. No, absolutely not. No, there's wow. a, a huge so amount of research. So all these people that make money as day traders, they should just take the entire portfolio and stick it in an index and walk away and go somewhere else? And yeah, do something if, else? You, if, you, if you gave me the 100 people that performed the best in the last 10 years, I would bet an index, I, I bet an index would outperform 85% of them over the next 10. I think there's a lot of evidence that suggests that that's, that's how it works. And I think on top of that, you have all the friction of taxes and going in and out and the yeah. negative consequence of being wrong. But no, it's not like there's, we can't just say there's two sides to the argument and therefore they're equally valid. There is a tremendous amount of research that the person who buys indexes and holds them outperforms a market timer and a stock picker. That's not even debatable. The only thing that's debatable is your aunt can say, that's true, 85% of the time or whatever percent it is over the last rolling 10 years, the buy and hold index investor does better than the, the day trader or the trader or the market timer, but I know how to stay in that 15%, right? Now there's also a lot of research that shows the top performers from the previous decade as a group lag the index in the next decade. So we know that it's, we know for sure in the public markets that we cannot look at past performance 
as an indicator of future results when it comes to trading and market timing. So she's going to have to say, not only am I not in that 85%, but I'm also not, not in that very large group that can't repeat it. And so you start to get down to the odds. And if you told me the odds that I'm going to underperform are over 95% over 20 years, why would I go look for that 5%? I'd just rather be, I know an easy path to the winner's circle, but most people don't want to take that easy path. And just tell me why in your understanding, because obviously you're, you're a financial guy, but you have to understand human psychology because this is, it, it defies logic to do this thing that we're talking about, but a lot of people do it. Well, I'll tell you exactly why. Because there are some dentists that are better than other dentists. And there are some athletes that are better than other athletes. And there are some doctors better than other doctors. And I work with these folks. And I can tell you that when I'm looking for a dentist or a doctor or whatever, I'm, I know that some are better than others. And so I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about like who can handle this procedure or what I need the best for, for me or my family. And so we want to believe that there's better stock pickers than others because it makes sense, especially successful people. So really successful people are better than other people at something. Like you're the best in the business at running a podcast for dentists. You just are. We can't say that the number 25 guys better. We have some results that, that tell us why you're better. So it makes sense that someone like you would say, well, clearly there's somebody who can fix stocks, but I just need to find that guy because it works with everything else. Why would it work here? And it doesn't work here because the market is so efficient, it's hard to beat. There are millions of people trading these stocks every single day by the second. And this idea that we're going to find a guy down the hall in Miami or New York or whatever, and he's going to be the guy that can beat the other millions of people that are buying and selling Google and McDonald's, it's not... It's not practical. If you were going to buy a house in the middle of Iowa in this town of 100, and the only doctor in town was leaving, that's an inefficient market, right? You, he can't just sell his house, right? Put a for sale site. No one in town can afford it, probably. We're going to need a dentist or a doctor to show up and buy the house, right? It's an inefficient market, so you can probably get a good deal there. Now, if you go to a condo building in New York City that has 5,000 units that are all the same, and that means every day a few dozen are selling, there's probably a price for those units. Let's call it 1.2 million. You're not going to walk in there and buy one for 800. Um, and no one's going to get away with selling you one for 1.6. The market's pretty efficient. You're going to go to your laptop and you're going to see 12 sold yesterday. They're all the same and they all sold for about 1.2. It's pretty efficient. Take that, multiply it by a million, and you have Nike, and you have McDonald's, and you have Chipotle, right? Everybody knows everything. It's publicly disclosed. By law, everyone has access to the same information. So how is somebody going to beat this? We really need somebody to say, I see something about Amazon that nobody else sees that I can exploit this, this gap. And so it's, it's not perfectly efficient. I'm not one of those guys that's just, I'm religious about it. It's just efficient enough that it's going to kick the ass of the market timer and the stock picker. And so well, it's also the S&P itself is efficient because it's, right. the top, it's a revolving list, isn't it, of the top 500? Yeah. So if one like, company starts to suck, it, it drops off. That's right. I like to use the restaurant example. So let's say that you you are in your town. I think you're in Miami, right? So you're you're in Miami, and and you're, there's a hundred restaurants, you know, within X miles of your home, and you know that you're, there are restaurants today. You know those restaurants are making money. That's why they're open, and you know in a few decades there will still be restaurants, right? But we don't necessarily. If we had to just guess like which of these 30 restaurants are still going to be here 30 years from now and put our money in them, um, we would pay more for certain restaurants than others. If there's a Capitol Grill in town, you're going to pay a lot more. There's a mom and pop that looks like it's struggling, you're going to pay a lot less. You're going to pay a fair price for each. 
Now we fast forward 30 years, we do know one thing. We know there are probably still gonna be a bunch of restaurants. We know they're probably gonna charge more than they charge today. And we know that if you own a basket of restaurants today and you own a basket all the way through the 30 years with the, the bad ones dropping off, like you said, replaced with good ones, you're gonna make money. Now the stock picker is gonna put all their eggs in a couple of restaurant baskets. Now before this sounds so obvious, think about, I'd have your listeners think about that their top 100 restaurants 20 years ago in their area. So I live in Kansas City and literally some of the very, very, very top restaurants in town, they're gone. Some of it is the chain that managed them went under. Some of it is the, the owner passed and the whoever took it over couldn't handle it. Tastes change, locations change, crime rates change. If you're, I look at that as like the restaurant index, right? If I can put my money in Miami restaurants and 20 years from now, all I've got to bet on is there are still restaurants making more money than today, I'm probably going to make some money. And I think that you, you need that revolving door of the index to protect you. And the other good thing about an index is an index gives you the high flyer. So if you own the S&P 500, the argument of a stock picker as well, you know, Lehman Brothers was in the S&P 500 and WorldCom was in the S&P 500 and Enron was in there. And every year a couple of stocks go, go away and they go, they go down. Well, how much do they go down? Well, they go down 100%. That's pretty bad. That's not a good thing. But now let's think about Amazon and Apple and Nike and Southwest. These went up thousands and thousands of percent. So when you own an index, you catch that high flyer. You get the needle in the haystack because you've bought the haystack. Mm -hmm. You catch that high flyer that lifts up the return. So yeah, you can get, I'll, I'll take my two or three Lehman Brothers in exchange for one Amazon. I'll take my two or three Enrons in exchange for one Netflix. If you look at the S&P 500, I think this is a shocking statistic to people. It's 500 stocks, about 500 stocks. Um, it's never, rarely exactly 500, but it's about 500 stocks. 13 of those stocks make up 25% of the market capitalization, just 13 stocks. Wow. Like Microsoft, Nike, and so on. That high flyer becomes a disproportionate amount of the market cap. And so if you have that super successful stock, you participate in it, it lifts up the return of the S&P 500. And that's why it's hard for a stock picker to beat the S&P 500. The S&P 500 is not average. Two thirds of stocks generally underperform the S&P 500 and one third outperform. The reason that it's not 50-50 the way our mind would make us think is because the high flyers lift up the return. So if you look at the, the Lakers, they might score 100 points tonight. It's not gonna be evenly distributed among everyone on the team. LeBron's probably gonna score you know, more than everybody else. And so you catch that high flyer when you have the index. Yeah, I just think it's fascinating that there's a human psycho psychological component to it that this is what's tried and true, logical, yeah, I'm not going to do it. That doesn't right. sound like a good idea for well, me. And the, but the, rather, yeah, and the other side of the equation is the person you're going to for the advice feeds that, right? Yeah. Because they know that that's the easier way to close you. You know, the easier way to sign you on is to say, hey, I can, when the market's going to go down, I've got indicators and I'm going to move you to cash. Or I know how to rotate from sector to sector. It be, it's an easier sell than, hey, in these parts of the markets, we can't beat it. You know, so here's what we're going to do. And then we'll go do this over here. That's a lot harder sell. Well, you can't so, make money either. So putting you in an index fund, the cost of entering an index fund are typically pretty low. Yeah. It's passive management. It's not active management. You know, way to, a way a broker generates fees is by actively moving around. Yeah. Right? I mean, do I have that correct when I say that? Yeah. I mean, you, some brokers will make fees by just charging a flat a percentage on the account. And some will make fees on, on commissions. So you definitely have to look at what your setup is. 
but it's easier to compel somebody to come into a strategy that involves security selection, market timing, some of that more, the more sexy stuff of uh, in the investment world. So at the end of the day, in summation, obviously just be committed to the process of, of getting in the game, not try and time the market. Right. And, yeah. and I mean, is that kind of what you're saying? I mean, you've just never seen evidence where someone could prognosticate about the market and, and do better than just holding. That's right. So I think okay. that if I'm, if I'm one of your listeners, I'm looking and saying, what is the, what is, I want a plan, right? I want to know where I am and what I'm trying to, what I'm trying to accomplish. We need to have a very clear starting line and very clear goals. I want to pay off my debt. I want to pay for my kids college. I want to have 200,000 a year in retirement, that sort of stuff. Then I look at the debt side of my balance sheet and the, and my investments. If my debt is seven, 8%, I'm not investing. I'm paying off my debt. Yeah. It's very hard to earn seven, eight percent. If my debt's two, three percent, I'm probably investing, right? Because yeah, I could probably good. be two or three. That's your arbitrage, right? Yeah. Then I want to get into the market and I want to know what asset classes I need to own to accomplish my goals. If I'm really young, I don't need a lot of bonds. I need to be buying a lot of stocks. I should get excited when the market goes down because I can buy more stocks for the same price. Um, if if I've got a very long time horizon, I'm high net worth for some reason. I want to have maybe some alternative investments, but I want to avoid market timing. I want to avoid stock picking. And I want to be committed to my strategy for the very long run. Like what type of alternate investments? So for people that have a million or more, the world can open up to things like private equity, uh, private real estate, private lending, things like that. Okay. Okay. I know you're smiling. You want me to say cryptocurrency really bad <laughs> or something like that. No, Peter, I'm, ta- you to, I'm Peter, taunting you, to, you a little bit. Yeah, Peter, you want to hear a funny thing? We, we lectured together at this thing called the Dental Influencers Alliance in Los Angeles about a year ago, December. And Peter has the cojones to wear this huge cryptocurrency. No, Bitcoin. It was Bitcoin, just a Bitcoin shirt. shirt. Yeah. And I, we did a podcast. I'm like, dude, what are you wearing that for? You just lost 30%. And he said, he goes, time will prove one of us right on this one. And yeah. then from that day forward, and we don't have to, I don't want to go on a tangent here because I'm, it's a waste of time. Everybody's got an opinion on this, but it actually went up like, yeah. And, and Peter, I'm not trying to get, I'm not trying to bait you into talking yeah, about it. I really am not. I just, um, it just, I am curious to have someone with the chops that you have on our show from a financial acumen standpoint. And like, I am like, suppressing all of my desires to ask you all these questions right now. I'm well, gonna, I, now I'm just going to answer it. So I think <laughs> <laughs> here's how I, here's how I see this is I, I have never said all cryptos are not going to work. Um, what, and it's interesting to watch kind of my interviews on CNBC and other places get, get edited a little bit, but here, here my position on this uh, has always been the same, which is that most cryptocurrencies are, are all cryptocurrency is speculative. So what speculative means is, we're not earning anything. It's not like I'm renting a building and I'm getting rent or I've got a bond, I'm getting yield or I'm getting a stock, I'm getting dividend. I'm buying something and I'm hoping somebody will buy it for more later. Okay, that's speculation. There's nothing wrong with speculation. The right? greater fool's theory, right? Right. Sometimes speculative stuff works. So if the first thing is someone needs to understand, I'm not really investing, I'm speculating. Fine. Somebody says, great, I'm speculating. Now we've got over 3,000 cryptocurrencies. And in my, I wrote one letter on this topic a few years ago. And I said, look, of these thousands of cryptocurrencies, I think 99% of these are going to go away. And by go away, I don't mean they're going to go down. I mean, they're going to go to zero. Zero. I would agree with you on that. And since I wrote that letter a few years ago, that's actually already happened to the huge majority of cryptocurrencies. Will there be one that might work out? Maybe, right? Do we know what it is? Probably not. And I, I look at it like, there was Lycos and Excite, and then there was Google. Yeah. There was BlackBerry and Palm, and then there was Apple. Yeah, I watched that YouTube video you did on this, actually. <laughs> right. that's, how, that's how I knew where oh. you stood. So, so uh, I mean, 
we'll we'll see. You know, somebody will win, thousands will lose, and and I think you're gonna see the same thing play out with cannabis. Yeah, and and honestly, things like that is are super speculative. I will be on the same page as you, and you should not be investing money in something like this that's super speculative and that you can't afford to light on fire, right? Exactly. And so, so I, I'm with you on that. I just think it's a fascinating thing. So I will ask yeah. you one question. Yeah. In that in that question, eight thousand uh, dollars. Let's see today. So nine thousand dollars of Bitcoin or one nine thousand dollars of gold. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. Gold or Bitcoin is what I'm asking you. I mean, I think gold's a terrible investment too. So I'll just, I'll just start by going on the record that they're they're both terrible investments. So if you look at, if you look at an, an how will you be listening, Peter? Just nine thousand dollars of S and P, buddy. Just do it. I know, but like I can't. I just it's so even it's psychology. Just, you know, I need some adrenaline sometimes. Some shots of like, oh shit, I could nine thousand dollars with the skydiving. Nine thousand dollars with the skydiving. It's perfect. It's interesting. If you an ounce of gold bought you a suit a hundred years ago, an ounce of gold buys you a suit today. The only asset class that's major asset class that's done worse than gold is cash. It's been outperformed by bonds, U.S. stocks, international stocks, emerging market stocks, real estate. And um, Peter, do you know the best okay. performing asset class in the past ten years? I'm gonna guess it's Bitcoin. It is. So will it will it prevail or not? You know, I don't know. I think there's gonna be a lot more losers than winners, though. I I love that. I love. Thank you for for humoring me and going down. Yeah, you uh, bet. Thanks for baiting me. I feel I feel literally just like (laughs) it's off my shoulders now, Craig. I was literally biting my tongue. There's 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 a bleeding tongue right now. There's no way this can go. It's all good now. It's all good, Peter. I'm a big fan. So um, just so our listeners can get in touch with you, is that just creativeplanning.com? Yeah, they can go to creativeplanning.com and uh, just email us directly from that site. And uh, what about something special for our peeps? Anything, uh, anything that we can, you know, uh, not special, but just, just so they know that like they're coming from, from us and they're being uh, uh, a little yeah, extra they're just wanting some help. Right. Yeah. And they're bulletproof yeah, listeners. If, if when they email in us, they let us know they, they are, came in from listening to you guys. We'll give them uh, our book, Five Mistakes Every Investor Makes and How to Avoid Them. We expand a lot on some of the topics we've talked about today in that book. Cool. So just mentioned that you uh, got found from Bulletproof and um, they'll, they'll take care of you with that book. That's awesome. Yeah, actually. I've read it. That's really cool. Uh, yeah, it's, it's incredible navigating this uh, landscape of psychology. It's the same thing with dieting. People put all these gimmicks in place. And it's just like, you know, just or trying to lose weight rather just put on your shoes and get consistently running or doing something yeah. on a basis. And that's just not fun because humans right. want to find well that exercise. Who wants to follow that? Right. Yeah. It's so boring. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I'll do my two mile run today. That's I want to move the needle today. Like what right. should I do? Should I swallow charcoal? What, what's, the, <laughs> what's the hack? Humans just want the hack. And the unfortunately hack. The, the road to wealth is probably not as sexy as uh, people are telling you. It's just consistent and slow and steady. Right. I mean, the vast majority of, of uh, millionaires got there by actually having a job. Uh, the average millionaire worked 50 hours a week and just put money away every month. That's the typical millionaire next door story. It's not all the stories you hear about in the press. Those are the exceptions. Yeah, and there's plenty of people that make a million or two a year and they're completely broke. They have no extra yeah. cash. And right. there's the story of the postal worker that, you know, or the guy that works at a shop making 40 to 70 grand and he's a million dollars in investable assets. Yeah. Yeah, awesome. right. Well, we really appreciate your time today, Peter. Peter. Thank you. As always, That's it's awesome. just amazing to hear you speak. And I hope that the dentists um, that are listening really took this in because I, both Peter and I have made massive, massive mistakes 
and uh, it hurts, but it feels good that we're paying it forward and, and hopefully uh, hearing some other people or letting some other people know that there's a way that you don't have to pay with that experience that we had to pay yeah. with. I lost so much freaking money. Oh. And I want to so, thank you too. This was, a, this was a lot of fun. You guys are great. And I think it's commendable what you do um, for your industry. Every industry needs an advocate and a protector like what the two of you are doing with dentistry. And I just think it's a wonderful thing and you deserve the following that you have. Thank we you, appreciate Peter. that, buddy. Thank, thank you. you. All right. Thanks, guys. All right. Take okay. care. Take, take care. care. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Bulletproof Dental Practice Podcast. If you got any value or insight from today's episode, we ask for your help. First, review us on iTunes. It creates awareness to help others find us, and it literally takes like five seconds. Second, if you want to stay in touch with announcements and updates, text the words Bulletproof, all one word, to 345345. We promise not to bombard you with spam text. Also, don't forget to check out our upcoming summit, 2020 registration page at bulletproofsummit.com. We're going to be focusing on digital marketing, including social media. Do not miss this one for real. Thanks y'all.